Dr. Koontz, we got a question from Anonymous and uh, he, she, they. Sure. What were the other ones I'm supposed to say? Ver, Smur. We got Zier. Zier. Yeah. yeah, okay. The person says, uh, do you think... <laughs> Is it a birthing person or what yeah, is that's it? That's right. That's right. I don't know. I'm assuming they're human, right? Um, do you think that the church should stop taking the federal government's money for colleges and universities via FAFSA and other programs? Is one of the missions of uh, Luther Classical College to separate itself from the federal government? Should the church abide by the rules of an IRS 501c3 status? And somewhat relatedly, uh, is it sinful to take student loan forgiveness that Biden is offering? Is this forcing payment on those who did not attend college, already have paid off their loans? Personally, my field feels subverted after the past two years of medical tyranny, and I do not know what I should do professionally in the future. I have not lost my faith, but I feel the college system as currently constructed is amoral. Yeah. The first question is a little is a little simpler than the second question, because the second question involves some of the alchemical mechanics of finance to answer. So let's do the simple one first. The, the simple one is that receipt of federal funding always implicitly carried federal regulation and penalties with it. It's why that was eschewed all the way back in the 1970s when civil rights legislation began to impose certain requirements about quote gender equality that was that was kind of the the rallying cry in the 70s that that got the farthest and that's when Hillsdale and Grove City and some others began to issue federal funding for that reason okay and i think in that they were simply prescient because the problem here is we don't know what will be required of us and already the idea that you know, you really shouldn't have a football team because you need to be able to provide enough scholarships for something no one is interested in watching. You know, I mean, just to be fair, <laughs> just to be fair, but also honest, I covered all sports daily in college. I'm sure you could go find those somewhere deep on the interwebs, all my articles about field hockey games and swim meets and stuff, and nobody came to field hockey. Okay. Nobody came. And we had already cut football because it brought in too many conservative guys and uh, it was too popular. So it was a Title IX cut. So I think Hillsdale, Grove City, and so forth simply saw something earlier than others are seeing it, which is that this is this is a devil we can't even really dance with anymore. It wasn't explicitly on a daily basis for most people a devil, Historically, that's why it seemed normal and okay and whatever. I think it just it ended up just being something we can't really handle faithfully anymore. And Luther Classical is set up. I mean, it's not just trying to separate itself. It is separate. And the reason there is that it's just a it's just <laughs> it's better to learn to live on your own than to be dependent on your tyrannical dad for any length of time. And the government is revealing itself more and more as a tyrannical dad. So if the government, if the government for some reason just reversed all of its regulation of education from the past 70 years, then maybe I could say, it's okay. You can take, you know, $200 to help you buy books. But at this point, no, I don't think so. The second question is a lot more complex because 
it involves it involves can, can we stay on the first one for a second? Yeah, go ahead. No, I'm that's just, fine. Go ahead. I mean, I, I don't, I, I, I agree with you. Um, it just, it seems to me that so many of the things that uh, are the camel's nose under the tent by which the government has managed to leverage its ideology upon universities yeah. are things that aren't even what the university's for. Um, football? Like, is, is that real? I mean, I know some people go to school to play football. I, I get yeah. it. And a lot of people watch it. But like, yeah, really? That's what that's why we have higher education. I thought we were building like nuclear bombs and a network of industrial complex and stuff. Right. Like, like <laughs> well, right? we're doing it all. Um, <laughs> uh, the reason we have football is because historically uh, American colleges are English derived and the English understanding of education was always you are getting a certain kind of a life with other people to whom you will be connected the rest of your life. Right. It was never just about learning a certain amount of stuff. So the team is about building brotherhood through rigor and discipline yeah. and so trial. So obviously yeah, none yeah. of this had to do with, you know, multi-million dollar stadiums and shoe deals as it does now. I'm just saying that's why we have football and nuclear weapons research and we're going to cut the baseball team so that we can get more money for someone who's biologically male to play field hockey, whatever the case, that's why we have all, all of that. It just seems to me that what it's become again is a grand show underneath which what it was supposed to be isn't really even there anymore. And I'm not sure that's even the the agenda of the, the big old mean government. I, I think it is uh, a sign of a, a profiteering bubble yeah. complex, right? Yeah, and 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 you don't you don't have to take government money for it to destroy, or or even before it destroys in some sort of ideologically clear way to distort your priorities. Okay, so it will distort your priorities naturally in favor of the sciences and even the social sciences, mm. especially psychology over the humanities, which are really the core of the philosophical and theological understandings key to Western civilization. You can't have those without the humanities. And the humanities will naturally lead you into the sciences because they will spur your curiosity about God's creation. The government will, even before it demands that you have some certain percentage of whatever protected class, will first distort your priorities in favor of research that is of benefit to the Department of Energy, right, the Department right. of Defense, whatever. And that fight is enough of a fight. I mean, Dartmouth College has had to fight to remain the size of Ivy, a very small Ivy, that it still is. And it has its own forms of capitulation, but it has succeeded in maintaining a focus on undergraduate education, as has Princeton to a large degree, that the others have not. But Grove City doesn't take federal funding, but it's fighting about having a, you know, gay affirming club on campus. So yeah. you don't, I mean, government, not taking government funding is not a silver bullet, but it is some kind of bullet. <laughs> it is, yeah, it is. It is it kind is. of useful. Yeah, right. It's not an unuseful bullet, but I guess what I'm getting at is that uh, if you really want to make a a 
change for the future, it has to be more than just about the funding mechanisms yeah, that right. are driven by an ideology which is poisonous. You have to actually re exactly. reject that ideology altogether from the start, which exactly. means understanding what the purpose of higher education is. As you point out very well, it is to create uh, moral thinking problem solvers, and that, that's what the humanities does. And then from Do. there, yeah. um, you right. go elsewhere as each individual you know finds the hunger. And and I don't know. I mean, does Hillsdale uh, fit that bill? I, I don't know. I don't. I don't look. I, I haven't really watched that carefully. Now, I'm sure Luther College has this as as something of its of its dream, of course. And so, yeah. you know, more more props to you there. Yeah, I I think it does. I think I think Luther Classical is is aiming to do that. I think that for Catholics, there are some schools that have been doing that, not coincidentally, pretty much all founded since the 1960s. Because I think there were people sort of like when we described the the rise of the homeschool movement, there were people in the 70s who essentially saw everything that is occurring today. They said it's going to happen. They just sounded largely crazy because everyday life had not fallen apart or disintegrated. Kids were not crawling around high schools on all fours demanding to use litter boxes. I'm not even exaggerating. But since that wasn't explicitly happening in 1974, you know, the people that founded whatever, Christendom College in Virginia, or the people that would eventually found Patrick Henry College, also in Virginia, these kinds of places, that that prescience was was granted to few. I think it's easier to see these things now. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Moving on to the Biden, Biden money. Give me some Biden, Biden loan money. forgiveness money. So I use the adjective al alchemical because there is something of, you know, turning lead into gold about a lot of financial instruments and their inventions. And something that I think is relatively absurd about what I see as a debate actually happening, this, this is one rare debate that happens in front of my eyes on Facebook between various of my multitudinous Facebook friends. And it's generally split along generational lines that Xers and boomers are against this loan forgiveness thing and millennials who are you know not coincidentally generally heavily indebted are are for it i don't have a particular position on this myself but i don't see it as i think it i think it's rather financially naive to see this as essentially immoral as if somehow your tax bill is being directly increased by the fact that someone is being forgiven $25,000. And this has to do with what, there are several things. I mean, this might just at this moment turn into a show about this. I don't know. But there are several things going on here. One is generations seem to have no comprehension of the economic realities of everyday life in other generations, because these things have changed so rapidly over people's lifetimes. So the price of everyday objects, the price of land, the price of housing, also how those things are acquired. And in addition to that, workforce realities, such as the proportion of people in trades, the proportion of people going to college, who was encouraged to go to college, who was not, the availability of vocational education on a wide scale. So vocational education used to be much more widespread, for example, there was a professor with an Ivy League PhD at Luther Seminary for a long time, Roy Harrisville. He went to a vocational high school. It was just kind of normal. His dad had two, who was also a pastor. So 
lots of things have changed and people seem to be utterly ignorant of that. Factored into that too is that when you're talking to somebody else, usually you're talking to somebody who is too incurious to try to find out about you firsthand. So you should just assume that they're reacting on the basis of the things that they know, which if they're in a different generation, it's not just that they know MASH and you don't know MASH or vice versa. It's that they kind of think certain things are obvious and you think other things are obvious. And if you don't account for that, you're just going to get angry at each other. So I find that constantly. In addition to that, there's a naivete, I think, about the way that finance works. The Congressional Budget Office came out with a an estimate of the cost of these things. And there, there have been other sources that have come out with other estimates, some of them higher. But the CBO estimate was roughly $400 billion in the cost for what Biden is what Biden is offering. And then the reason other estimates are higher because they are factoring in what is, I think, a very predictable growth in loans and inflation of the price of education if it's announced that there will be loan forgiveness. So other estimates are are giving you higher, like 600 billion, 800 billion, because they're accounting for the future, which the CBO is just accounting for, and that's their job. They're just accounting for the cost of what is on the table currently, okay, politically speaking. So I think what is naive about that is constant anger at your fellow citizens when the thing that makes this all of this possible is the alchemical nature of the Federal Reserve. Mm-hmm. I mean, you're you are enraged at some, you know, whatever 37-year-old who has too much college debt who I'm just I'm saying like you need you don't you don't on the internet you probably don't need to care but in real life you should probably care about the fact that that's all that person was ever told. So getting angry at him because he did what he was told which is what human beings usually do and he went to college is absurd. I mean growing up where I did we were pretty much all told we should go in the military hmm. uh or if we didn't go in the military to to serve as you know Appalachian cannon fodder we could get a trades job. So it was different from most of suburban America but I I can't sit around being angry that more of us didn't go to really great colleges because none of us was told we should. That's just the way it goes. Most Americans were told they needed to, so they did. And they contracted debt that is difficult for them to pay. Your anger doesn't really need to be directed to them, though. What about the financial system that makes all of this possible and will turn the debt into useful investment products for investors, and you will not benefit, and the people holding the debt will not benefit? Yeah, that, the other that, thing to yeah, go, go ahead. That's where like for me, it's just to get on the question specifically, is it sinful to take the for debt forgiveness? Like if you're if you're asking on judgment day in Jesus' sight, is yeah. this like murder? The answer is no. No. Okay. No. Um no. if if by sinful you use the old testament meaning of the word more along the lines of it's a bad scale, like you need to take the forgiveness that's being offered, but you need to realize you would be financially better off in twenty years if nobody was getting this. Because what they're doing to us with this forgiveness isn't helping you or us. You need to take it because you'll be worse off if you don't take it. But all of us, you know, rising tide lifts all ships. Yeah, a a tsunami crashes all ships. And we're facing an alchemical tsunami. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And that's that's a better answer than what I'm giving. I mean, I'm I'm kind of giving vent to 
what I have seen as an enormously effective way for the Biden administration, especially to benefit its various interested parties. And we have noted on the show, especially on this topic, that that student debt is disproportionately held by black Americans who are vastly loyal Democratic voters. And so Biden is doing something that is very politically shrewd here. He's also ultimately benefiting higher education and the loan industry because he's just inflating the cost of those things too. So there's a devaluation of currency, which is always an unjust scale. And that's his problem. That's not your problem. And you will be worse off if you don't take it and don't apply for it. Your family will be materially worse off and you will not have stopped the American Commonwealth from disintegrating further. That is on the leaders. There are things that only leaders are responsible for. The fact that you're using something right in front of your eyes that could be helpful to you is seems fine. I mean, you're, yeah, you're participating in a system that is messed up. That's life. If you want not to take an action politically or financially that, that, you know, is, has no moral ambiguity about it, then you need to go out of this world. This world is a place of conflict and most political actions are morally ambiguous. Sometimes they're obviously evil. Um, And that, that's the way it goes. If if the king thinks that he should take all the bread and then hand out bread to you and that leads to mass starvation, you should still get in the bread line. Like you you still go get the bread he'll give you, right? So just because the king is doing a wicked thing that's going to harm everybody doesn't mean that you don't need to protect your family. It doesn't mean that you don't need to be prepared to serve your neighbor, which means not owing anything to anybody, right? I mean, I think that's the biblical idea here is, is you know, <laughs> uh, debt-free is is actually wise. Um, yeah. And, and uh, you know, since you have become free, why be a, a slave to anyone? And don't get me wrong, I got a mortgage, yeah. right? So so you use the tool that's in front of you, recognizing the bad scale for what it is. The dollar itself, it's a bad scale. It's it's a lie. The fiat currency yeah. is a lie. But yeah. you know what? I still got to buy beef for my family today. And as much as I'd love to just get off the dollar, it's not an option for me. And so I got to pray for a better government. I got to pray for a better country. I got to pray yeah. for a time in which God gives wisdom to the leaders of those who make these decisions. And I also got to expect that that's not ever really going to happen the way I want it to. And so I got to pray for Jesus to come back and just kind of walk through this weary wasteland with my head held high, knowing I'm immortal, right? So, yeah. Yeah. And I, I mean, and people are like, well, what about people that went to co- did, didn't go to college and they did this? Or what about people that paid down their debt? It's or something? all I mean, kinds I, of unfair. I mean, duh. Yeah, it's all kinds it's, of unfair. That's, that's life. I yeah. mean, <laughs> I paid down my debt too. I don't, I mean, I'm not, I don't know what you're looking for the world to be. <laughs> To be to be morally aligned with what should be. I mean, I, again, I think I think that also the outrage. How how can they do this? Well, they're doing it because it's politically smart. That's why they're doing it, and it's election year. That's why they yeah, didn't I mean, do it, it last yeah, year. Yeah, it's exactly right. I I don't think it's actually going to help them that much. But that's just you know I think they're going to steal the election anyway. It, yeah, it, it's I one among it's, other things. Yeah, it's just not that. To, go ahead. They're trying to drive millennial turnout, which is low. That's yeah. the problem. That's yeah. They're trying to drive millennial turnout as well, but the the but now they just the, free them up to play more video games and smoke more pot without thinking about it. They don't have to worry about their <laughs> loans anymore. So of course they're not going to turn out. Yeah, that's right. But I I think I think that you know outrage that something is happening and then division against people who are probably actually like your relatives, 
is is foolish. It, it it's foolish. What it does is that it disintegrates the solidarity that you have with people who are right there in front of you. And much like the the projection of the meaning of America onto America's actions in certain wars that we talked about last week, it transfers your sense of what is politically necessary out of what is in front of you, the place where you live, the place you're from. You're from Rhode Island. Why don't you care about things that matter to Rhode Island? And it divides, therefore, your place and your family against you so that you are allied now with other boomers who virtuously paid down the you know cumulative $200 they owed in college when college costs so much less. Or it unites you with the other millennials who are holding down you know however much debt and trying to manage it and blah, 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 blah. I mean, the, the way of dividing up generations, the media does extremely skillfully. Right. By yeah. making your interests not the interests of your own literal family. I mean, right. if I wanted to run around being angry at boomers all the time, that would mean I'm angry at my own parents, categorically. Welcome to Gen X. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I, I, was, I think I was born too late for that generation. So, I, don't, I mean, but I don't want to do, I don't want to do that. No, I but mean, it's, your, your point it's here silly. that, that uh, one of the primary demonic, can I say it this week? Yeah. One of the, one of the primary yeah. demonic effects, tools, intentions, things they are doing to us with the media is setting us against them when us is no longer us in this area, but is an yeah. idea far away so that them is next door to me now and all right. around me. So whereas my neighbor and I once upon a time would have been concerned with our survival because we live here, now we're concerned with someone else's war, fifth generation even. And the ability to get us to be participants in that warfare is the way they keep us slaves, uh, the way they keep us from rising up, not to throw them off, but to simply make it better where we are because we're too busy arguing about Ukraine to get the trash off the streets. <laughs> yeah, and there are plenty of American cities well-stocked at this point with Ukrainian flags that have horrible crime problems and horrible public transit problems and homelessness problems, but you're not supposed to be publicly angry about those things. No. no. So um, anything else on that topic or can we shift over to the threat of air support? I think the, the shift to air power is a good one because something you can see is that Air power is probably the prime example in the Second World War of something that doesn't get necessarily remembered for its importance, but will be tremendously important for everything that is decisive in the Second World War, as well as everything that will then be decisive for the Cold War after it. And when we discuss the Cold War next time on the home front, we will be talking about some of these factors in people's just everyday thinking. On the generational topic, this is a generational, this is an actual generational difference between people who grew up with some sense of threat from the air and people who did not. Americans under a certain age, for instance, probably are not, do not really think about missiles or strategic bombing hardly at all, even though they both still factor in a very big way into America's defense establishment, but we don't think of them as threats. In Red Dawn, the Soviet paratroopers come from, as paratroopers do, from the air. And that's a technological change that predates the Second World War, but really only comes to its first full use 
in the Second World War. We've mentioned before that the Spanish Civil War in the earlier 1930s, early and mid-1930s, is a kind of a prelude to the Second World War, even in the ideological alignments to some degree, fascist versus communist. But one way in which the Spanish Civil War is, is not a good run-up is that you have a reality that is predicted in the 20s and 30s, but not really realized until the 40s. And that is of mass threats to civilian populations, specifically from the air, whether strategic bombing or rockets, missiles. The development of those things is really pioneered, especially in rocketry, pioneered by Americans, but developed throughout the 1930s into the early parts of the Second World War by the Germans. So rocketry, including the desire for space flight, are things that people were looking at very early on in the history of aviation. And that's why you get sci-fi novels, even from the 19th century, involving rocketry, space flight, visits to the moon, visiting Mars, and so forth. The absolute best commentary on early sci-fi really is out of the silent planet. Oh, yes. Because that is in many ways a parody of the science fiction that men of Lewis's generation grew up reading. Little Green Men. Yeah. And the idea that what you were looking forward to was a, a settling, a, a being at home among perhaps barbarous life on other planets and turning it all into Earth, terraforming it so that it would be just like Terra, our home planet. That that vision, that dream did not reckon with something that we are harping on on this show because it is a fundamentally Christian assertion that the problem with man is not even his technology, but himself. Mm-hmm. And that when he leaves the silent planet, whether he goes to Mars or whether he goes to Venus or whether in the final novel of the Ransom Trilogy, he is on Earth. His problem is always himself so that he really cannot escape himself. A focus on technological history without an understanding of who man is, therefore, will just narrate some of the things that I will give in a brief sequence now, just so people are clear on what's happening. The Germans did not pour coherently as a regime after 1933 into nuclear research in the way that they did into ballistic and aviation research. And that is that is partly because of Hitler's interests personally, as well as Hermann Göring's interests, but it is also partly because they saw air power as definitive in a war. So remember that the men who prosecute the Second World War generally will have fought in the First World War. Hitler was gassed. Hermann Göring was a fighter ace in the First World War. There are many other such instances, including the half-Jewish head of the German Air Force in the Second World War. These are all men who fight the first. Because of that, they learn that air power can be decisive but in the First World War, it simply could not be delivered. The Germans do bomb London in the First World War via Zeppelins. But the, the airships, which are so popular 
in the 1920s in all nations decline in prestige and uh, funding after the destruction of the Hindenburg in New Jersey. I believe that's 33 or 34, maybe it's, it's, it's mid-30s. So then strategic bombing becomes a matter of either throwing the bombs via rocketry or delivering them via bomber aircraft. The Germans are going to opt for rocketry partly as a matter of convenience because they do control Western Europe and can therefore aim rockets at southeastern England from Holland particularly. But it's also a matter of necessity because strategic bombing aircraft require so much logistical support that the Germans simply don't have. So they have scientific know-how, but they do not have the material you know, needful for strategic bombing. So they're going to invest instead in rocketry. That rocketry will protect them to some degree when strategic bombing comes to them, but it will even more than that terrorize the British population. So my favorite World War II novel, number two would be Catch-22 by Joseph Heller. Number one favorite World War II novel is Thomas Pynchon's Gravity's Rainbow, which is uh, sort of a Vietnam era writing, but about the Second World War. And its opening words are, I think, extremely poignant for thinking about the Second World War, which is a screaming comes across the sky. And that's a description of V-2 rockets. There's, of course, a V-1. There are other Vs, but the V-2 is the most successful and widely deployed of the German rockets. The V-2 rocket is strange because for Pynchon and his imagination is, is conditioned. Pynchon is, a, Pynchon is a descendant of one of the, I mean, a direct descendant of one of the judges at the Salem Witch Trials. And his the lead character in Gravity's Rainbow, Tyrone Slothrop, is a a swamp Yankee from Western Massachusetts. And so there's this constant interplay with Calvinist theology and gravity's rainbow that you may also notice when I analyze American history is that it seems like one of the judgments of God, the V2 rocket, because it comes down without warning on people who are targeted without their knowledge and it destroys you before you hear it. So it's like a being marked as reprobate. You are you are destroyed long before you ever know about destruction or you're deserving of the destruction. And it's that terror of sudden death that will carry through in all kinds of ways. But something noted in the Second World War, as it was in the first, is how war affects the civilian population that it will usually degrade their morals because they will begin to behave in ways marked out by the fact that they believe they could die at any moment. So this obviously always affects uh, military populations because those men are in obvious desperate fear of death. So they will begin to do things that human beings will not normally do, but will when they believe that they're going to die soon or could die soon. If that happens to a civilian population, it obviously changes the entire civilian population radically because you have people who are both unprepared for this, do not understand why it's happening, and do not expect it. If they begin to expect it, if they begin to live in fear that they're going to die sometime, then all sorts of strange things begin to happen. But for both world wars, there are going to be mentions of 
you know, morals declined. People began to be unfaithful to their spouses. People began to lie, cheat, and steal one another in everyday life and so on and so forth. And I think part of the reason that this happens in the Second World War is that there are very few civilian populations that are not under actual threat of destruction. And that is specifically possible because of air power. Without delivery of bombs, either via rockets or bomber aircraft, that's not really possible. And it is such a threat that actually all civilian populations are supposed to be prepared for destruction from the air. Remember in It's a Wonderful Life that Jimmy Stewart's character is involved. He can't, George can't go to the war. So he's involved in the war by being part of civil defense and that he's like an air raid observer, right? We had those across the United States as well as blackout regulations. <laughs> I think in much the same way that we had worries about, you know, you know, your your little six-year-old is going to transmit COVID if he goes to school without a mask or something. I mean, it's just the idea that in upstate New York, somehow the Germans are going to get bomber aircraft all the way to upstate New York and bomb Bedford Falls. Yeah, they had to know that well, was impossible. The, the yeah. American government had to know that was impossible. Yeah, exactly. But the entire country, including general aviation, this is the origin of the Civil Air Patrol because guys want to keep flying their own private aircraft. So they say to the government, well, we'll, we'll be part of civil defense. That idea that the entire population needs to be mobilized it's not that that had never happened before in war. The Southern population in the Civil War is, is perhaps entirely mobilized for war. But it's it becomes plausible because of air power. You either have real threats from the air, like rocketry from Holland falling in England, or American bombs, and we'll talk about that in a little bit, falling in Germany or on Japan. But because of the threat of from the air... And how abstract that is, and how sudden that can be, you have a you have a plausible threat, and therefore a a believable mobilization of the civilian population for the sake of the war that is going to increase between the first world war to the second. So the entire population will now be, as it were, set on edge by the existence of air power. Yeah. So air power as the first terrorism. There are there are terroristic threats before air power. But when they happen, they're going to be confined to specific targets. So right. a lot more we're limited. worried that an anarch another anarchist is going to shoot another president or right. um, you know, another, yeah, whatever, you know, Italian immigrant is going to send a bomb to the attorney general. That's right after the first world war. Now it's like any of us could be bombed. <laughs> any of us could be maimed. Any of us could be harmed. So we need to be on edge. We need to be on the alert. We need to do what the government says. All of that is is crucial. One of the ironies of American history is that it doesn't hardly at all. I mentioned some exceptions last episode. I want to say there's there's unexploded Japanese ordinance that kills people in Oregon, and the Japanese do attack Alaska, and of course they attack Pearl Harbor. But there's a <laughs> Pearl Harbor is its own subject. We actually predicted to ourselves that Pearl Harbor would be attacked, and we didn't prepare for it. Um, it was bombed in naval exercises twice in the 1930s. And the admiral in charge of that exercise said, we need to prepare for this. You know, and we didn't. Uh, yeah, I, I don't know that I, I have much to add in terms of, you know, everything you're saying is is valuable. And I'm, you know, you're more learned than I am here. 
Um, except maybe, I mean, I'm sure you know this, but a little irony of, of the history that we may not have prepared for Pearl Harbor on purpose, but somehow we had all of our aircraft carriers not there. And that was a major, major turning point moment. Um, if those if those had been there, this very issue of aircraft in the Pacific would have been something we couldn't have we couldn't have done what we did uh, for quite some time. Yeah, uh, yeah. Um, yeah, and 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 that goes that goes. The reason Pearl Harbor could be its own episode, and but because it it would just sort of be about the Roosevelt administration and and wouldn't have over much applicability, maybe. Although I I guess I mean. The listeners could certainly accuse me of picking obscure things sometimes. Just wait until we talk about McCarthyism via an obscure legislative committee in, in a southern state. It's not just that it would it would be obscure. It's that it's a debate that occurred at the time, occurred after that time. There's an entire book, which I I reviewed in Christian culture, I think in its first issue, called Perpetual War for Perpetual Peace that was an edited collection from the early 1950s about a lot of different aspects of American public life. One of which was whether President Roosevelt knew that Pearl Harbor was going to happen and did not try to stop it. And one of the pieces of proof there is taking what he actually valued. And remember that, that FDR was assistant secretary of the Navy during World War I that like his cousin Theodore, he was a big supporter of naval power throughout his life, but that he had been captivated by the importance of aviation and and spared the aircraft carriers and let others die, even though he knew it was going to happen and did not interdict the Japanese aircraft on their way. That's a debate. It was a debate at the time. It was widely suspected at the time that he knew it was going to happen that the the actions of the Japanese were predictable because of the fuel embargo that we had imposed upon them under relatively brusque terms. We weren't really trying to deal with them with any kind of, I don't know, respect at all. So all of those things were at the time debated and were debated after the war and after FDR's death. So it's it's reasonable to to assume that that not only did FDR want to want to enter the war, but that they were relatively aware that this would be would happen, and it would happen in this way when when the Navy was preparing for the threat of Japanese aggression, they they figured they're going to try to bomb Pearl Harbor. I mean, if if someone wants to argue that he didn't know, like to me, that's less important as what it showed in history was the value of aircraft and the ability to move your aircraft right. as the the ultimate final um, weapon. Because even with your nuclear bomb, unless you got a rocket, interballistic missiles, which we did not have yet, um, the only way you're getting these things anywhere is aircraft, on aircraft carriers. Right. So, so the ability to not just create terror wherever, um, but to to do it wherever, you know, that that is the change um, that escalates this war and wins this war, really. Right. Um, what I, I don't know if this is connected to where you want to go, but but I do find it interesting how um, in, and I'm not by no means well-versed in this, but, you know, in warfare theory, um, 
air war has changed significantly since then. Uh, we certainly have have seen in places like I believe the Balkans uh, and elsewhere that that strictly war by terror from the air, while it can make a population feel really bad, does not win wars. It is not doesn't yeah. it is not definitive in its own right. Right. And and yet now we also have a, a new twist in this, which is the drone reality um, and the potential to have uh, multiple aircraft that don't have to be um, quite so uh, so big, so powerful, but can actually go out and, and target um, or police or do things like that with a battery power and all this will ever you know make that that feasible in some sort of like mass surveillance way uh, yeah. is, is interesting. But to me, that all still fits under air power. Uh, it, it is. Yeah, no, so, yeah? it does. And the, and the the existence of drones, which is which is attempted but but simply not technically possible in the second world war and and if you want whoever you know is out front on on trying any of these things it's it's always the germans in the second world war a jet aircraft rockets attempts at drones they're there they deliver their paratroopers via gliders just all kinds of interesting things but the existence of drones and then the debate in the united states during the war in afghanistan and the war in iraq about, you know, are these guys allowed to wear flight suits? Should they get air combat medals, et cetera? It, it's very interesting because it's it's really just an old version of of a single debate about how impersonal and unromantic and destructive and unchivalrous air warfare is. The exception to that is sort of the stream of thinking that is about the individual pilot, like a knight of the air, waging his battles. And you will see in in any American war, although certainly with decreasing frequency over time, I mean, most people can't name an ace from Vietnam or Korea. And in Iraq and Afghanistan, we had such control of the air that our fighter aircraft were relatively unimportant. I mean, World War One begins with aviation being such a special realm of human endeavor of such importance that it's really used, the, the planes are used pretty much solely for reconnaissance. And they agreed not to be shot at and not to shoot at each other. I mean, they will, in fact, in 1914, Germans and British pilots will be waving at each other when they pass in the air on their way back home. Huh. It's it, it. There's an idea that there's a code here and there are things we don't do. And this is a realm where we are not fighting. I mean, it's it's very it's almost impossible to imagine, and it, and it changes in that war pretty quickly. By the Second World War, that's not there. But the Second World War is notable for something that is not present because not really technologically possible, and that is the mass bombing of civilian targets. Okay, they they are industrial targets. It's wartime. Therefore, they're also military targets, but no one has the precision to entirely avoid civilian targets, certainly not then. And everyone knows it, and everyone knows it to such a degree that the the air marshal in charge of the Royal Air Force's Bomber Command, known as Bomber Harris, <laughs> is recognized by many people around him even during the Second World War when the British and the Americans having successfully, the British having successfully defeated the German aerial onslaught in the Battle of Britain in 1940. 
now from the base of Britain begin to bomb using American industrial capacity, especially the German controlled European continent, but especially the German homeland, such that most people know Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Maybe if you've read Kurt Vonnegut, you know about Dresden too, which is told through the eyes of an American POW there. But the point is that most Americans are not really cognizant of what we did to civilians via air power in the Second World War. Or we don't really think of it as having done something to someone. We think of it and remember it primarily as a means of victory, which it was. But we don't think of it in its effects on what it did to the people who were the targets. Yeah. Yeah. One of the bits out of uh, Tsunami in the East from Dan Carlin, Hardcore History, uh, the Japanese perspective or or take or history of World War II, yeah. that really jumped out to me, and I'm going to have trouble kind of encapsulating it because I didn't you know, take notes. Um, but before Nagasaki and Hiroshima, we had developed such ridiculous artillery that on, on a level kind of heretofore unimagined, especially yeah. with napalm being a right. part of that. And we weren't just, you know, igniting cities in a flash of light with radiation. I mean, we were, we were burning alive huge, huge population groups. Yeah. And um, th th that wasn't enough for Japan to seed. I mean, it was, it's kind of, kind of amazing actually, right. uh, because we were dropping and dropping and dropping and dropping death on that Island. And, um, and how much was the American public aware of it? I don't know. Probably not much. Um, but we we knew what we were doing. It wasn't like they didn't know what they were doing as they were as they were scalding, you know, men, women, children, uh, regular people trying to live their lives. Of course, they they swear to the emperor. Of course, they believe in the rising sun. Yes, um, but this is a, a level of warfare that you know outside of I don't know some medieval craziness um, yeah. you, just, you just hadn't seen uh, speaking of unchivalry right it's just it's just right yeah so the the notion of chivalry so let me just let me just compare our use of strategic bombing in the second world war to another example that's sometimes held up alongside it and i i think this will be helpful to show you what what changes because the the sheer calculus and this is laid out most convincingly if you want to look at it the argument for we drop these bombs to spare the lives of American men is made by a very eloquent writer named Paul Fussell, who went on to teach English at Princeton and wrote a book I really like called Poetic Meter and Poetic Form that will teach you about the nature of poetry, for especially for you homeschoolers. But he was, I think he was a Marine in the Pacific. And the Marines had been a lot more successful at the war in the Pacific. They had adopted a different strategy than MacArthur did in the Southwestern Pacific. And the Marines were going to take the brunt of the casualties, certainly initially, if we had invaded mainland or the Japanese home islands. So he lays out, that's here's why we did this. Here's the difference between what we do both to the German homelands and, the, and, and to the Japanese from, say, what is remembered as completely destructive, which is William Tecumseh Sherman's March to the Sea, from his victories in Southeast Tennessee, Northern Georgia, all the way to the sea at Savannah, the burning of Atlanta, the burning of Columbia, South Carolina later on. If you look at the actual record of what Sherman did, he is 
even with a marauding army that in the Carolinas, for example, is just foraging, he is scrupulous and ruthlessly disciplines men who harm civilians directly in any way. Okay. Not that it doesn't happen. It always happens. Armies always bring havoc and plague and destruction wherever they go. That's that's a truism of history. He, however, is very, very harsh on men who take lives, who commit rapes, who do a variety of things that people don't even know were done, for instance, to the Germans or the Japanese as they began to decisively lose their their respective portions of the Second World War. He's, I mean, it, that that is a, a Sunday school picnic, what Sherman did in burning Atlanta or destroying Southern industrial capacity or agricultural capacity. That is a Sunday school picnic compared to the things that were done by the allies to the Axis powers in their homelands in the second world war. So, I mean, he was, he was not trying to burn civilians. They did not bring to bear, you know, they, they did, they did not bombard civilian targets knowingly with civilians in them. They did not accept collateral casualties, civilian casualties in anything like the proportions that were acceptable for strategic bombing in the second world war. And I think the difference here is not perhaps that mankind was, you know, coherently greater or more moral in 1864, 1865 than in 1944 and 1945. But mankind did have at his disposal much greater weapons, much greater in their destructive capacity in 1944 and 1945. And it would seem then that what man did with air power is that when given the capacity to deploy it in wartime, he went from something that had started out in such an almost innocent way of scientific curiosity and sheer desire to fly. So, so innocent that you have pilots waving to each other in 1914 to this will rationalize almost any action because it will help me win. So again, I'm not sure that the problem here is is the technology. I'm not sure that you know a nuclear power plant is evil because it's a nuclear power plant. I think the problem has always been man. You know, Lewis doesn't complain that the the various villains and their various manifestations in the ransom trilogy, are using spaceflight. He complains that they have evil motivations also here at home in England. And those evil get motivations get deployed on campaign on Mars or Venus or in England itself, according to the evil bent of that man's heart. So it would seem that what the technology does is it, it seizes upon man, but also man seizes upon it for purposes he already had. Yeah. Okay. That's interesting. I, I've been um, thinking recently about, I'm going back to bashing on the TV, everybody. So hang, hang on. Um, I've been thinking about why did God forbid carved images in the Old Testament? And as a 
New Testament Trinitarian Western Christian. I agree that the incarnation of the Son of Man has made it so that, you know, a statue isn't evil. Uh, the, the image of man has been redeemed and so forth. But, but uh, what, what's really going on? What's the issue? Is the issue that statues are bad? Is the issue that a picture is bad? Or is the issue that man is so bad that when he looks at a statue or a picture, which is an early form of technology, he can't help but do wicked things with it. And so he ends up using the picture, the idol, literally, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. as a form of divination, future telling, projection, planning, hope, worship, one way or the other. And I think if if you want to take anything out of this, it's to recognize that um, non-Christians, that's all they got all the time. That's all that, I mean, whatever they are, whatever they have, whatever they can look at, they're going to worship it. Christians, you still got the flesh right there with you. Um, can you repent? Uh, can you see the danger? Um, of course you can, right? What do you do next? Uh, that's important. But so all of that coming out of kind of what you're saying there, that uh, the, the issue is not the picture. The issue is man can't help but abuse the picture. And so it continues with these newfangled uh, witchcraftery, witchcraftery tools that, that we're playing <laughs> with uh, all these times. I, I think what I mean, one of the ironies of air power is that there are hopes in the 1920s. I think they were always they were always vain hopes, but there were there were hopes as an expression of a larger desire for some sort of internationally recognized peace expressed in things like the League of Nations or the various treaties, naval treaties, armaments treaties that that various Western powers made during the 20s and 30s. There were hopes that air power would function sort of like the way that people later on would hope that nuclear weaponry would would function, that if we all had enough of it, then we would have what would later be called during the Cold War mutually assured destruction. And so we would just never go to war again because the cost would be so prohibitively high that if we we all had bombers, we could all bomb each other or then later on fire missiles at each other so rapidly that we just couldn't afford to go to war. And so we would avoid war. And so the the world would be at peace. And that would be the only way to reconcile man's propensity for violence with his desire also not to die. So that's, I mean, I, I think it's interesting. That's Giulio Douay, that's Italian theorist who reportedly never actually even rode in an airplane, let alone flew one, let alone flew a bomber in wartime. Nonetheless, began to theorize in the 1920s and this gets picked up in the United States by Billy Mitchell and some of the other early say fathers of what will become the air force is the hope that air power will expunge from man the fighting that seems to be endemic to land armies or naval combat that now we will have mutually assured destruction i'm using the cold war term and but that will thereby make the world safe for peace it's it's an interesting theory i think it's predicated on a view of human nature changing far more radically than human nature is able to and that's something about human nature in relationship to technology that i think a lot of people notice frequently with domestic technologies not to speak of military technologies that 
man is not able to grow up enough to use the technologies that he invents. So mutually deterred destruction is what Lutherans call the first use of the law, I think, uh, technically. And it is something, the curb, which then prevents certain behaviors because of the blowback, the danger that they pose to me in a yeah. given scenario. It is a curb that does impact us in general mm-hmm. sometimes. Mm-hmm. It doesn't stop madmen, though. And the problem is not only that we're all being driven mad these days, but but actually mm-hmm. our elites have a long and glorious history of going mad. I mean, go outside of our century and way, way beyond, you know, go, go all the way yeah. to the Caesars. They go crazy. And so they're not as concerned about their own destruction. Uh, they have a God complex of sorts. And in an age now where more people have God complexes than they probably did back in, <laughs> in, in the early centuries, like yeah. it, it, none of this really kind of holds anymore. Like, I'd like to think that the nuclear bomb isn't going to fall, um, but but it's not if, it's when. And that's just sort of black swan thinking there, I suppose. But but eventually, given enough time, you're going to find the right kind of crazy. And if it's not the nuclear bomb, uh, it's some other thing. To be sure, then, uh, yeah. none of these tools that we're developing in order to win peace are ultimately going to win peace. They're, they might have peace for a time, um, but someone else is going to say, if I can get that, then I can. Um, and someone else is going to say, look, my religion says if I die killing a bunch of people, that's actually a good thing. And so, you know, who knows what else will come down the pike eventually. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Because mutually assured destruction exists within a framework for and of some relative sort of equals. Mm-hmm. It does not exist for imbalances of power. I mean, we can we can bomb into oblivion some country that cannot control its own airspace if we can, and we cannot control for the deployment of weaponry by people who don't accept our frameworks. Mutually assured destruction relies on some sort of commonality of outlook and predictability of behavior that's going to be crucial, as we're going to see with the Cold War we're going to do, we'll talk about its domestic aspect, but we'll also talk about its foreign aspect. The foreign aspect of the Cold War involves a certain amount of understanding, which is why the people who are most diligent in insisting that we don't want a hot war with the Soviets anywhere in the world are generally Russian speakers <laughs> who, like George Kennan, whom we'll profile, have some sort of understanding of the Soviets as human beings from the inside of that culture. If you don't have that, if you don't need to have that because the people you're trying to kill are unbelievers or they're they're consistently portrayed in cartoons as Japanese rats or German pigs or whatever the cause may be for some sort of imbalance, then the curbs seem to be removed. Mutually assured destruction or curbs, first use of the law on one's behavior, are for someone who accepts limitations on his own behavior and some understanding of other human beings under the sun. When those things are not there, then of course human beings behave as if they are gods. Uh, We're at the end of the hour. What's the red thread of insecurity about? The red thread of insecurity is to draw for the listener this assertion that we're making about continuity from the First World War through the Cold War, which is that the idea that you would be insecure unless some step is taken, especially a warlike step, is really crucial to how you mobilize a public for war. 
you have to give them a sense that even if they live in upstate New York, they could be bombed by German bombers that cannot reach them across the Atlantic or by German rockets that cannot reach them across the Atlantic. But they need to have a sense that they could be. And then they will be much more pliable and useful. If they do not feel threatened, then they are liable instead to revolt against your purposes for their own purposes. So there were draft riots during our civil war in New York City because it was honestly in New York City's best interest for the South to open back up economically. It was not in New York City's interest to send more New Yorkers to fight in a war they didn't particularly support or care about to begin with. It's much easier to control and mobilize populations when you can make them feel consistently insecure and threatened directly by the Russians, the Germans, the Japanese, whoever. So remember, everybody, wear your mask because war is peace. You're listening to A Brief History of Power. You know where to find us or you wouldn't be here. What do you think of when you hear the word college? Expensive? Liberal? Woke? Imagine a college that is affordable, a college that is unapologetically conservative and Lutheran, a college that won't take a dime of federal funding, a college that teaches the best of our Western heritage, a college where students grow in the Christian faith instead of leaving it behind. This is Luther Classical College, a college by Lutherans and for Lutherans. Visit our website, lutherclassical.org, subscribe, become a patron, and join the thousands who are making Luther Classical College a reality. At 7,123 feet, you can find mountains soaring above you and rivers running swiftly in the valley below you. Natural beauty of every kind. But our God is richer in his gifts than this. At 7,123 feet in Pagosa Springs, Colorado, you can also find God's word preached purely and his sacraments given out for your salvation at our Savior Lutheran Church and School. Located off US 160, just west of downtown Pagosa, our Savior offers your children a wonderful place to learn of Christ and his wisdom week in and week out, and offers you the medicine of immortality Sunday in and Sunday out. Our Savior Lutheran School provides a Christ-focused classical education that enriches the child's soul with the best that has been thought and said to the glory of God. Whether you visit while vacationing or hunting in the beauty of the area, or whether you would like to join a group of faithful Lutheran Christians, our Savior Pagosa Springs has what you're looking for. Divine service with Holy Communion is each Sunday at 9 a.m., and Bible class follows at 10.30. At more than a mile high, you will find Christ in all his glory in the midst of his people at our Savior Lutheran Church and School a proud sponsor of A Brief History of Power. Find out more at oslcpagosa.org. North Idaho is home to beautiful mountains and scenic lakes, small-town tranquility, civil freedom, and the faithful Lutheran parish of Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church, located in Hayden, Idaho, near Coeur d'Alene. Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church is a proud sponsor of A Brief History of Power. If you like what you hear on Brief History, then you will love Blessed Sacrament, where the Lord's Word is faithfully preached and Christ's body and blood are administered at every divine service. Whether you are visiting Idaho or considering moving to Idaho, wouldn't it be nice? 
Please join the saints of Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church for the Mass and Augsburg Academy Bible Study. Directions, service times, and much more information about this confessional liturgical parish may be found at blessedsacramentlutheranchurch.com. Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church, Historic Christian Orthodoxy, the Evangelical Lutheran Faith in the Beautiful Inland Northwest.